If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Leia Upi spent her childhood in communist Albania, one of the most isolated countries in Europe. Then in the 1990s, following the fall of the Berlin Wall, the communist regime was swept away and Albania embraced capitalism and democracy. In her new book, Free, Coming of Age at the End of History, Leia, now Professor of Political Theory at the London School of Economics, revisits those dramatic years, describing the complexities of life under communist rule and the fraught transition to democracy that followed. She spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. You spent the first decade of your life living under communist rule. What was it like for you growing up in a society like this? Um, In some ways, it was a a normal childhood. It was the life of a child with a family that supports her and um, who invests in her education and is trying to make sure that uh, the child is supported and that does well and is integrated in society and doesn't suffer from all the censorship and the oppression that surrounds the family. And so my childhood was a normal childhood in many ways. I would, uh, like all other children, go to school, read a lot of books, go home, play in the street, um, spend a lot of time with my grandmother, watch a little bit of television, but not that much because television programs were very limited for children. Um, In the summer, we couldn't travel, we couldn't go abroad, we couldn't leave the country But we sometimes went to the beach. I lived in a coastal city. So we spent the day at the beach and came back home and went for a little passeggiata in the evening. So in many ways, to me, it seems now like a normal childhood. And I also remember it as a happy childhood, actually, in many ways. That's a really interesting point, because I think a lot of people here in the West assume that growing up in communism would be really miserable, all the shortages, all the restrictions. But actually, for you, that wasn't the case. There were shortages. And uh, I knew there were shortages, there were queues, and they were part of normal life. And the thing for me is that as a child, you don't really question because children don't really have the same reflexive capacity as adults. And you don't necessarily question your surroundings as much as adults do. And so I was growing up in a period of my life in which I wasn't really suffering from the fact that there was censorship or the fact that there was scarcity, the fact that the amount of clothes that you were wearing were limited and that there was limited choice on consumer goods and that everything you got was something that was a little bit, just a little bit harder to get compared to how it is now. Um, Books, for example, would only come up in the bookshop every now and then. There wasn't unlimited supplies of books for children. Libraries were very important. You would go to the library all the time because that's where you would find also all the books that had been in the shops before and had run out. So it was um, the access to goods was marked by shortages. But 
The reason I say I felt like I had a normal childhood is that I I lived in a family that made sure that I was supported and that uh, went out of their way to find things to give me. I was a little bit picky with food. I didn't like feta cheese, which was the one that was a little bit more accessible. I liked another one, the kind of yellow cheese, kashkava, what we call, which was harder to get. And my father went in the village and tried to get it. And so I remember remember the scarcities very vividly and I remember the cues very vividly and I remember that there was limited choice and that there was also this um, desire to have things from the West, you know, clothes that looked a little bit different or um, chewing gums. We used to swap chewing gum wrappers. We had collections of wrapping paper and uh, that's how we played with children because we didn't have actual chewing gum. We didn't have sweets. There were only Albanian sweets, which uh, had, they didn't have the particular brands of the, the goods that produced them. They only had sweets written on them or pasta written on them or bread. And so this was something very strange because in the West, everything had a brand that was, you know, the brand of pasta. There was different brands of pasta had different names, whereas for us, it was just pasta. So I remember all these things that came from abroad and made their way into Albania that were weird and in some ways also desirable because they were different. But um, but other than that, I yeah, I, I felt like I had friends, I played on the streets, I I read books, I had nice chats with my parents and my grandmother. And so in other ways, I think it was a life of a normal child, the life that my children have now in sort of in a family where they're supported. So And I presume that at that young age you weren't aware of the more oppressive aspects of the regime and what might happen to say political opponents and things like that. No, I was not aware at all of that. And this is why I think it was a happy childhood, because I wasn't aware of it. My parents, um, I came from a dissident family. And uh, so there were lots of stories of persecution and imprisonment that the family was aware of. But uh, the thing in Albania was that life was very much also shaped by school and education. And um, in school, we had moral education classes in which we were told about communism and about socialism and where how Albania was positioned compared to the other uh, great powers that surrounded us. And and in school, there was a sort of ideology of the system that would be transmitted to you and that my parents never questioned. So whenever I brought things home from school and told them that, you know, I had been told this about socialism and that, you know, to be a good socialist, you know, to do this and that, and that I wanted to be a pioneer and so on. They never said, oh, this is bad, or you, they never questioned it. In part, because I think they had internalized the censorship so much that they wanted to make sure that I felt integrated and that I didn't stand out as a member of the the class that was being fought, basically. So although they were very aware of the fact that there was a kind of class struggle and class war and they were on the wrong side of the class struggle, they made sure that I never knew this. And so whenever they spoke about the system or about politics at home with very limited range of people that they trusted, it was always in code language. And so I didn't understand what they were talking about and I didn't think that it reflected anything on the system. So I never questioned the system until it actually came down because I I had never been given any reason to doubt that what uh, I was being told in school was not right or that I had any reason to to distrust it. So although on the one hand for adults, this was a society of, as you can imagine, lots of censorship and a very oppressive society. Uh, for children, it was not at all an oppressive society. It was the, one of the freest societies you could imagine because you could just go out and play on the streets and you could, um, you know, go for walks with your friends. You can spend time with them. You didn't have reason to be suspicious of strangers when they talk to you 
people generally trusted each other and if you know someone talked to you on the street it might they might know your parents or they might just try and help you or so there wasn't this degree of uh, worry about outsiders sort of interfering with your children that we seem to have now that I have now for example here with my children so i feel as for adults this was very repressive society for children there was actually a lot of freedom and um yeah freedom that children now don't actually have so would you say that Along with, obviously, the shortages, the repression, the censorship, were there some positive aspects of living in a communist society at this time? Um, I would say that there are things that had been lost that have been lost from that society that we don't have anymore and that I feel, um, when I think about my upbringing, that I miss. Uh, one of the things that I miss is the fact that knowledge was very important and um, and access to knowledge was the kind of currency with which people would compete and, and think about advancing. And um, I feel that we have sort of lost that desire to just know more things, which is strange because in a, you would imagine that in a censored society where precisely knowledge is curtailed, you wouldn't think that this is the thing that you miss about that society. But in some odd paradoxical way, because there was lim- because there was censorship and because people had this yearning for knowing more and for knowing what was beyond what was given by the system, there was this drive to always read more books and to, to discuss more and to have more culture and to kind of criticize more that is in some ways now feels really strange, as I say, because you wouldn't think that in that society you'd find it. But that's one of the things that I really miss about growing up. The other thing that I miss uh, is the fact that there was a lot of solidarity, precisely again because of scarcity maybe, that there was a lot of solidarity between neighbors and between friends and in school and um, people would just come and help each other all the time. Whenever you needed something, you could just go and knock on your neighbor's door and ask them, do you have this? Or if a child needed to be looked after, you either had grandparents or you just go and ask your neighbor or ask a school, someone, a colleague at uh, work to take care of that. And so there was a sort of sharing of tasks in the community and a sense of solidarity, which also I think has been lost and is just not there anymore, in part because life now is so unequal that uh, it's almost difficult to to ask someone for a favor of that kind. It's almost as though you're positioning yourself as someone who is in need and who hasn't made it and they should have made it, but they didn't make it. And so it's those sort of relationships of very strict equality gave a sense of community and solidarity, which has been disrupted, I think, as a result of the emergence of things that weren't there, sort of inequality and more individual freedom in a way. Earlier, you talked a bit about your family's background. I wonder if I could ask you a bit more about that, because um, your family history actually made things quite difficult for your parents, didn't it, during communist rule? Yeah, so... um both my my parents were uh, both came from dissident families as it were so they were uh, i was the odd one out in amongst albanian children in my class and in school and nursery and so on because there were um, both of them were as it were on the lo- on the wrong side of class struggle so on my mother's side they were very wealthy land and property owners who had been expropriated at the end of the second world war when the communists came to power and on my father's side they were also wealthy but they had been targeted by the party for different reasons because they they came from a family of intellectuals and also people who had been much more engaged in politics in the pre-war period so my great grandfather was the prime minister of Albania, both uh, in the in one of the first governments that emerged after the independence of the country, 
but also uh, more importantly he had been very uh, one of the key collaborators of the king who was maligned in communist albania as someone who had sold off the crown to to italy and in fact my great grandfather was crucial in making that transition when um, the italians occupied albania the king fled and my great grandfather was there to welcome and um, receive the italian fascist occupators basically Uh, Although Albania had been de facto colonized by Italy at that point because the Italians had a very important presence commercially and and had already established their presence in the country even before they sort of occupied it formally. But in in fact, my great-grandfather was sort of considered a collaborator um, during the communist period and was always mentioned in the history of books as someone who had been pivotal to this transition from an independent, albeit right-wing and monarchic Albania to one that was a fascist colony. And so he was the equivalent of, I don't know, the Maréchal Pétain in in France or sort of a key figure in the Vichy government, some equivalent of that. That made it very difficult on my father's side, even though there was also the family politics there was also very complicated because my grandfather, on the other hand, was a socialist and he had uh, studied with Enver Hoxha in France. They had known each other from youth. They had been involved in the Popular Front in sort of left-wing politics in France and so on. And so they had ended up again as rivals somehow in Albania in the post-war period because they had, although they were both on the left, they, they understood the left differently and they had different interpretations of what needed to be done at that point in um in Albania. So all of these things were things that I discovered much later when the regime fell and um, when Albania was declared a multi-party state and there was officially formally democracy. And um, before that, I wasn't aware of any of it. People were talking in my family about um, family members going to university and having long periods of research in this university or that university. And they always mentioned only the first letter of the universities. They wouldn't say which university. And I remember during my childhood, there were all these conversations about X went to S and Y went to B. And I didn't know. And I would ask them, well, what does S and B mean? And they would never tell me what it was. They would tell me, oh, they studied uh, politics or they studied sociology. And very only after the fall of the system, did I learn that when they talked about universities, what they actually meant were people had been sent to prison and that the names of universities were the names of different prison sites and that the different degrees that they were referring to were the charges that they had been given. So if you said someone studied politics, it was agitation and propaganda or another one. Uh, Economics was, uh, for example, uh, hiding gold, which was something that you shouldn't have done. They were expropriating, so that meant they were wealthy people and so So all of this, as I said, the politics in the family was uh, was very complicated, but I didn't have access to any of this as a child. All I had access to was what I was given in school and what I was led to believe about the system. You referred in that last answer to the the fall of the communist um, regime and then the arrival of uh, democracy, uh, capitalism, and this all happened in the early 1990s. How much of a shock was this for someone, you know, I know 10 or 11 years old to have all of your certainties suddenly disappear? It was it was a real shock and I realized when I started writing this book because I had kept a diary from the moment in which the um, the the country was declared a multi-party state and from this sort of pivotal moments in the 90s. I had not quite remembered how much of a shock it was. It only became clear to me when I read, reread these diaries to see the level of, it's not even shock, but just confusion about the fact that there were different messages being 
given from different sides and that, you know, I went to school and my teacher, my moral education teacher, was still committed to the system and didn't think that the system was going to fall. And so she kept reinforcing the messages that these were just, the, the protests that were happening were just skirmishes and it wasn't, they weren't important. These were just hooligans. The West and the East were full of hooligans and it just, we just had this sporadic episodes that were disrupting order and uh, stability in the country, but this was just a transitional thing and it was going to be dealt with eventually and uh, we would return to being a peaceful, orderly society and we would continue to promote justice on behalf of everyone else who believed in the ideals of communism. So there was this message from school and then at home there was clearly a sense of things are happening and, and my parents were very excited and they would listen to the Voice of America, which at that point transmitted all this interviews with Albanian prominent academics who were talking about the problems in the country and the student movements, which is how it all started. And they clearly were very excited about this and uh, and seemed to support it as well, which for me, again, was strange and confusing because I had always assumed that my parents supported the messages that the school sent. And so I was torn between my loyalty to the state and to the school, which was really sincerely felt. And on the other hand, the fact that I had always also relied on my parents and my family, my grandmother, for guidance. And that this was, yeah, it was very confusing. I wouldn't call it a shock because it's not as though anything really changed in my life, in my personal life, um, you know, in my family, in my family relations, I kept doing the same things. I kept going to school and I kept reading books and I kept playing with my friends. And those changes came much later and were much more gradual. So the sort of changes to the lifestyle and the scarcities were still there. They didn't disappear overnight. You know, the queues were still there even after the system fell for a while because it took a while to readjust to the to the market economy. So um, what I remember from the period and what clearly seems to be the case when I look at my diaries of the period is this just degree of incredible confusion about why is it that, you know, the, the teacher is saying one thing and my parents are saying another thing and who am I supposed to believe now? Because my parents have also said these things until now. So, uh, yeah, this was the, I think, what stood out for me from that period. And did your parents explain why they had for so long t- taught you a different set of values and now they were telling you something completely different? Yes, of course. They said that uh, my, as they called it, they called it biography. And so my background would be a burden on me as a as I grew up and that they wanted to protect me from this burden for as long as they could. And so for as long as things weren't being said to me in school. So in, in a way they said to me, you would eventually find out, you would discover which family you came from. And um, at that moment, at that point, when you discover it or when you have doubts and when you have questions, we would answer those, we would have answered these questions and we would have told you who you were and uh, why we were, why why we had these problems in the system and, you know, why certain things happened to us and why they would happen to you as well. Why, for example, you wouldn't be allowed in the party, the membership in the party was selective in Albania at that time. So you couldn't just, you know, apply to be in the party. You could enroll for it. You had to be a very, you know, the party was a vanguard sort of Leninist model of party where it's only the select few and it's only those who are more disciplined, more skilled, have better knowledge, have more conviction. And so my parents, for a range of reasons, couldn't be trusted to have those convictions and to have that discipline and to have that commitment to promoting the revolution. And so, and this would have transferred 
different generations of, of the family. And, uh, and, and again, I was confused because I was a pioneer at that time. And I remember telling them the pioneers was a sort of youth organization under communism. And it was also, uh, it wasn't selective. Everyone became a pioneer, but there was a sense of if you were better than others, you could get in earlier. And there was a merit base to the, to access to the sort of pioneer organization. And I remember telling them, but I became a pioneer ahead of my cohort. So my merits were recognized. Nobody told me that I came from this family and therefore I shouldn't be a pioneer. And because these, all this knowledge came at the point in which the system fell, it will, well, I will never know whether I would actually have ever have been allowed in the party or not, and whether class struggle would have changed or would have taken a different form and would have adapted. Um, the other thing to say about this sort of, about transitions and about political developments in this kind of system is that people often assume that, you know, Albania or a very repressive country is always the same and looks the same at different points in time. But in fact, there is always internal changes. And so Albania under its period of alliance with the Soviet Union was very different from Albania under its period of alliance with China and was in turn very different from its period of alliance with uh, Yugoslavia. And then at one point it was completely by itself. So Basically, in all of these all of these permutations that, that were geopolitical in nature and that had to do with the influence of other states and with the politics of the world as well, all of them were reflected in a different way inside the country. And so things were softer or harder and was in some ways more, um, you could navigate it or not navigate it. So it was purely oppressive or less oppressive, depending on these other permutations. So... And, and my parents had often said this as well. For example, um, they were allowed to go to university and not all um, members of dissident families were allowed to go to university at all times. They certainly couldn't choose any degree they wanted and so on. But my mother always explained this by saying, well, when we went to university, we were in an alliance with the Soviet Union. And so at that point, the Soviet Union was going through de-Stalinization that was the period of the 20th Congress and Khrushchev was making this big critique of Stalin and so on. So things were looser in Albania as well. And that's why we could go to university. So there was a sense in which world politics could actually shape and make a fundamental difference to the life of individuals. And for that reason, because I had sort of, as a, later on as I matured, sort of understood this, I, had, I kept having these doubts around what would I have been, you know, in communist Albania and if the system had not fallen down, would all these things. And this is what I now find most disturbing, actually, is the fact that, you know, my life now would be so different if things hadn't changed. But I just don't know what kind of life it would be. Would I be working in a mine? Would I be a teacher? Would I not be working at all? Would I be in prison because I would have said something wrong because of my criticism and so on? And this is what I find now the most disturbing question to myself is that what would I have been if this system had not changed? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There were Kalashnikovs outside my window every day that were falling on my windowsill. I didn't know whether I would finish my A-levels because school was shut and we were told to just do lessons through television. And so we were in this kind of lockdown, but not with, you know, not like the lockdown now where this is just virus with actually guns and people fighting outside. And so you said that your life didn't change that much with the transition away from communism, but what were the big developments that you kind of noticed going on around you in the country? What were the things that really stood out to you? Uh, so what I meant was that I, it didn't change overnight. It did change eventually and very significantly within the sort of first five years, things were really happening. So 
uh, well, for a start, we didn't have any cars in Albania until the fall of the uh, of the system, and suddenly cars started appearing from all over. So, uh, you know, there was traffic and there was more pollution and it was more busy. It was noisy in, in a way in which it hadn't been noisy before. It had been very quiet, often dark, those streets where there were sort of little lampposts, but they were, it was a very quiet and dark place, basically. And then suddenly it became very sort of buzzy and noisy and with lots of dust and, and so on. The other thing that changed is that people traveled. So before nobody could travel, there were only a few people who were, went for work and those were people who were close to the party. And uh, in the 90s, there was, first of all, a big waves of immigration. So a lot of um, efforts to go to Italy or Greece or sort of neighboring countries somewhere in the European Union, European community at that point, with all means. So everybody wanted to leave. It was either, you know, you try to cross the border or you try to get a false visa or get a false Western passport or be smuggled on a dinghy to Italy or, you know, you found a Westerner who invited you or you joined a travel agency and you went for a period and then came back or you overstayed your visa. There were all kinds of ways in which people just tried to leave the country. And so those were years marked by being surrounded by people who just kept saying, it's not possible to live here. We just need to leave and trying to find ways of leaving. And sometimes they didn't even know why they wanted to leave. It was just more that they wanted to leave the country and find something else. Um, So this was also sort of part of my upbringing. My uh, teenage years were marked by these departures of people. And uh, and the other thing is that my, my parents' fortunes really changed under liberalism. Um, they had been, before that, my mother was a teacher and my father was an engineer and he worked in a remote village, which became even more remote once someone spied on us and said that you know, people had to be sus- suspicious of our family. And so basically he had had um, this job that was a dependent job, sort of small level bureaucrat. And when the system changed, there was a sense in which people, uh, there had to be a circulation and those who had been on the dissident side were to be given more responsibilities and in some in, in, in an effort to reconcile and to also, I guess, try and um, make amends for the past with members of particular families, which was successful and not so successful because obviously a lot of these members of these families didn't have the skills to run the state. And so often there were also the same people stayed in key positions because they were the ones who had the knowledge and who could actually... Uh, navigate this transition. So, but with some effort, there were people like my parents, for example, got new positions of responsibility. And my mother was involved in politics with the dissident movement, who then became prominent political party and uh, and won elections. And uh, my father was the general director of the port of Duras, which was the main port in the country and one of the main ports in the Adriatic. And he was responsible for uh, working with international organizations like the IMF and the World Bank on what was called at that time structural reforms, which was this uh, effort to try and uh, make Albania and uh, all other countries of transition in Eastern Europe catch up with market economies by liberalizing, by cutting uh, labor force, by um, introducing a whole series of modernizing reforms, some of which had to do with um, basically just sacking people because the idea was that these socialist enterprises had been hiring too many people and they weren't efficient and weren't modern. So I also remember very vividly in those years, my father's trying to um, basically deal with these reforms in the port as a key uh, manager who had to collaborate with the World Bank and with the IMF and so on, and who had to make these decisions about sacking uh, 
hundreds of Roma people, for example, who worked as transport workers and freight workers in the port of Duros. And I remember uh, for many, many months I was in, in high school and every morning there was a long, long queue of Roma people just outside our door begging him and crying, telling him not to sack them and not to, to keep their jobs. And uh, this was really hard for him and, and it was actually very hard for me as well to see that he had, in some ways, it was this image of... He had a lot of power, but he also felt very powerless because these reforms needed to be done or he had been told they had to be done and that he had no other choice but to uh, sack these people. And so he kept going to and froing about what to do and how could he protect them. So this was a very live dilemma in my family um, at the time. So there was a sense in which a lot of things around me were changing, both in my family in terms of what my parents and my grandmother were saying my mother's properties were beginning to be chased because there was an effort to restitute some lands to the previous property owners and so um, yeah the, her family were chasing properties were always in court and trying to rescue documents and trying to find out you know what what evidence they could to prove that they had been the that their parents and grandparents had been the the rightful owners but then there were oft, also often property disputes because there would be you know a school or uh, the land that used to belong to them was now being used for a different purpose by different, uh, you know, by peasants or by, by other people, by agricultural workers that had been empowered under communism. And so there were all these kinds of conflicts as well to, to navigate. And did it feel to you and to those around you that life was improving under the kind of capitalist democratic system or did people actually feel they preferred the old system? Um. I don't think anyone in Albania would have said that they preferred the old system, but they also wouldn't have said that things were looking much better. But there was a sense in which, and uh, this is what sort of I remember most, is that there was a, a kind of a teleology of history. You know, there's something that we need to catch up with and that in communism had been, we need to realize the, you know, the revolution. We need to realize the ideals of communism. We need to become part of uh, the vanguard of states that promotes these ideals. And, and in liberalism, the message had changed. We need to catch up with the market economy and there are these costs of transition. We have to make sacrifices, and but these sacrifices will be made in the name of a, a greater good. It's not that things didn't change for the better for uh, a lot of people. It's just that there were some people that were remained left behind and others that, you know, made a fortune, often actually members of the previous socialist um, uh, government or children of party officials, because, as I say, they were the ones who had the knowledge and the key expertise to actually guide the country through the transition. And in that transition, became empowered themselves and maintained this sort of uh, key roles and so became extremely rich. Um, there were, you know, a lot of inequality. So some people became extremely rich and some people could benefit from the fact that, you know, others wanted to travel. And so they opened travel agencies or they were, uh, or there was obviously a lot of also other kinds of traffic, you know, people smuggling and, um, and sex trafficking and so on. These were all mentioned in the post-transition period as normal jobs. So you would say someone has opened a travel agency or someone is smuggling dinghies as is in the same kind of de facto way, as though they were just occupations that one had to undertake because of this transition. So, uh, so, so if you ask the question, did I see things changing for the better at that point? I didn't because I saw my family being given positions of responsibility. And so in, in a sense, their life obviously changed, their individuals, our individual circumstances changed. But in another way, life was really constrained. You couldn't, um, I felt, you know, in the 90s, it was really a dark period. There was a lot of uncertainty. 
people couldn't go out after dark because you wouldn't you weren't sure what would happen to you um there was um in 97 a collapse of these pyramid schemes that had been um companies set up in the 90s because the financial system was very immature and uh, the liberalization effort had brought with it a drive and a desire to just invest everything in these companies that promised great returns and great interest rates for, for very little. And so everybody had put their savings in these companies and eventually they all collapsed and this provoked um, uh, a very fundamental disruption and something close to civil war um, in the country. And so I you know, when I was 17, 18, doing my A-levels, the country was completely shut down. The uh, There was a curfew. You couldn't go out. There were Kalashnikovs outside my window every day that were falling on my windowsill. I didn't know whether I would finish my A-levels because school was shut and we were told to just do lessons through television. And so we were in this kind of lockdown, but not with, you know, not like the lockdown now where this is just virus with actually guns and people fighting outside. And so... So if I compare these two periods, you know, these were the two transitions that I lived through. One was the collapse of socialism, which actually, you know, there weren't guns and there wasn't this. It was an orderly transition in many ways. And then in 97, things collapsed and it it was almost worse in a way because there was a real risk to your life and a real sense of fear of what would happen. And so at that point, I didn't think in sort of 1997 that my life, taking stock of what had happened up to that point, that anything actually had happened, that would make me more optimistic about the future. It looked just as grim in 97 as it had looked in 90, with the only difference that in 90, there was a sense of hope that things would change for the better. And there was a sort of drive to uh, this effort to, we need to liberalize and we need to make sure that we make these sacrifices, but these sacrifices will pay off. And then eventually in, in 97, everything collapsed and it looked like, you know, there is not even hope now because even liberalism has failed and even this, you know, urge to invest and save money and circulate and make the, make sure that we have a liberal economy. Well, this is the result of it. So, uh, yeah, that was, that's, that's the answer to that question. And in, in your book, I think one of the most powerful parts is where you actually reproduce your diary entries for what, what you call, I guess, a civil war or close to a civil war. I mean, you were, you were still a teenager at this point. How terrifying was it to live through this period of your country's history? Uh, it was so terrifying that I didn't know how to reproduce that. That This is why I just, when I thought back about how to write this period of my life, I just didn't know how to write about it. And that's why I decided to simply reproduce the diary and let the readers make of it what they would. Because although with previous sort of transitions and with this with this. Um, move from from socialism to market economies i i could remember things and i could remember i had a narrative and i could construct everything around that narrative and i could explain you know i remember the dialogues and with the help of the diaries i could explain what was going on i felt i felt that when i arrived to this period in 97 where everything broke down i didn't even have the categories anymore to engage with this well with the socialist transition there was a sense in which there is this system and it's now being replaced with this other system and you could explain this transition. You can say we had a closed economy, a planned economy, and now we will have a market economy. We had a one-party state, and now we'll have a multi-party state. And you know, we had uh, community, and you know, not enough individual rights. Now we will have more individual rights, and we'll have freedom to associate and freedom of speech, and so on. There was a sense in which all these transitions could be explained. With ninety-seven, which to me was symbolic of the collapse of capitalism and liberalism. I just didn't have any categories to explain, you know, what is this now? Where is this now going to? Where is this heading? How would you make sense of this change? 
And that's why I found it not just sort of emotionally also because in my family, you know, lots of things had happened. My mother left on a boat because she was afraid. At one point she just saw a, a boat that was being used to smuggle people to Italy and she just jumped on it and left. And my father was an MP at the time and he was... Um, caught in parliament with during fire fighting and you know actually at risk of losing his life and I was left on my own with my grandmother with school shot and so on so all of this I just didn't know how to reproduce this in a way that would maintain the narrative of the book because in in the book I try to talk about freedom and I try to talk about how different ideas of freedom are reflected in the lives of individuals and how individuals uh, try and make decisions that in some ways reflect those ideas of freedom that they carry with them uh in 97 I you know it's very hard to write chaos and it's also very hard to write about the breakup of a system when you don't have a sense of direction and when you don't have a sense of where is this heading to and how do you describe what happens afterward and this is why I decided that I would just reproduce the diaries which are completely um it's a very schizophrenic experience reading those diaries because one day it looks like, oh, it's fine, there is hope and uh, things are not as bad as it looks. And then another day it's like, I'm, I don't think, I think I will die and I think it's better if I kill myself rather than being killed and all these kinds of things. So it's, and, and all of these there are there at once and you just don't know how to write about them. So I, this is why I decided to just let the diary speak for itself and uh, and let people make of it, you know, interpret this the way they want to interpret it. And that's sort of the end of the book in a way. Yeah, because it wasn't long afterwards, was it, that you left Albania? What, what were the circumstances of your departure? So I had... Uh, um, my my father was worried because he was an MP and uh, this in 97, the situation was very... was actually dangerous and uh, I... Just they they wanted me to leave the country because they felt it was unsafe. My mother had left at that point. As I say, she just managed to to run away, and uh, and then I also had been thinking about studying abroad because I at one point decided that I wanted to study philosophy and my family, especially my father, were very hostile to this idea. They thought that philosophy meant Marxist-Leninism, and that you know they had left all of this behind. And it made no sense to them that someone would come from that family and decide to re-engage with those texts. And I remember trying to reassure them that there was a lot more to philosophy than Marx and that uh, you could you could make. But the idea was that in Albania, the, the books were lacking. There was no strong philosophical tradition. Uh, basically, people had been tearing apart the books from, you know, Marx and Engels and Lenin and had replaced them with Popper and Hayek. And there was nothing in between. There was no effort to talk about the history of philosophy. It's no Aristotle, no Plato, no Kant, no Hegel. So I, yeah, at that point, it looked like it was a good idea to just go somewhere else and try and and study abroad. And this is all, you know, the way in which communities work. I'd been told that if I went to Italy, I would apply, I could apply for a scholarship and get a scholarship and, and maintain myself that way. So that was the year in which I finished my A-levels. And then I, uh, my, my father, who we had at that point lost all our, almost all our savings, borrowed a lot of money from someone uh, who had not lost their savings, but made some money and, uh, and sent me to study in Italy in hope of getting this scholarship. And, and I, so I ended up in a student accommodation in Italy with uh, people from also very poor backgrounds from Italy, actually. So this was, again, this time in Italy was a period in which I had moved from Albania and gone to a wealthy society at the time in which there was lots of hostility towards Albanians in Italy. There was a great wave of sort of immigration, lots of racist incidents and lots of stereotyping of Albanians and so on. And I ended up in the student accommodation with um, 
with the many people from working class backgrounds from Italy. And uh, yeah, so I could sort of see that the West wasn't as great as it had looked on the pages. Now, one of the, the, the big themes in your book is freedom. And um, in over the course of your life, you've lived through communism in Albania, then capitalism in Albania, and then obviously you've spent many years living in the West. What have those different experiences taught you about freedom and the limits of it? Um, in a way, the story that I tell the book is in is about sort of how different people uh, interpret different ideas of freedom. And so what I do is to try and think about different characters that I have met in my life and how they had thought about freedom and the limitations of that outlook on freedom in both the decisions they make and in sort of their orientation. So I talk about my mother, for example, as someone who is committed to what I might call a very liberal idea of freedom. So you are free insofar as you're not told where to go or what to wear and um, what to do, what to say, which were all the kinds of freedoms that were lacking in socialist Albania. You know, you couldn't travel, you couldn't wear what you wanted. You were always told to think in a certain way. And so these impediments were what she thought were freedom. And then my father had a different idea of freedom. He had he had a more what one might call a kind of positive idea of freedom. So you're free only insofar as you also have certain opportunities, which is why for him, it wasn't just a question of not being told to do certain things, but it was also a question of being given the means to do what you want to do and to kind of have a life that is flourishing. And that's also why for him, it was very difficult to make those decisions, for example, at the port about sacking people, because he realized that if someone doesn't have a job or if someone doesn't have money, Yes, they are formally free to travel, but they can't go anywhere because they don't have the money to buy a ticket to go anywhere. And so uh, and so that system and, and that way of thinking about freedom in some ways is also deficient. It's not enough to just be given the sort of formal guarantees to realize what you want to realize if you don't also have a sense of opportunity and if you don't have real opportunities and if those opportunities are not distributed um, equally. So that was a sort of a different understanding of freedom, which in his life he could he was committed to this, but he could also see the limitations of it. And it became very difficult for him when he was the person in charge of making those decisions that he knew would actually obstruct other people's freedom in terms of, you know, uh, telling them that they would not have this job from day, the next day. And, the, and then the other one, the other idea of freedom that I find very interesting and that I felt like my grandmother embodied is this idea of freedom as moral agency. In other words, the idea that we always, we are free because we have a free will and that free will shows itself even in circumstances that seem oppressive and even when there are obstacles to realizing it. she And, and in her life, this would, was sort of the message that she always passed on to me, was this idea that circumstances will always be stacked against you. And she was someone who in her life had experienced this because she came from this um, elite family who had lived scattered in the Ottoman Empire uh, for many generations and then came to Albania. She was an advisor to the prime minister, was the first woman to work in the Albanian administration and then ended up being the wife of someone who went to prison and then was deported, had to work in the fields. And so she had these very fundamental shifts in her life. And she always, what I found incredible was that throughout her life, when I asked her about her life and so on, she insisted that she had always been free. And I found this always completely bewildering because I thought, well, how can someone who's gone through this level of oppression and whose fortunes have changed so much, who had all these things and then didn't have them, how could they say that you, you're still free? And she said to me, well, because look, freedom is something that is inside us and it's to be 
to have the will to sort of assert yourself even against these circumstances. And we remain free for as long as we retain that dignity and retain that free will. And it doesn't matter, you know, how the world is behaving itself around you. If you have that moral capacity, then no one can take away your freedom. They can take away this sort of other things. But uh, these are all, in some ways, obstacles that enable you to assert that you are free by sort of rising yourself above them and by showing that you're still able to behave morally and to do the right thing. And so she kept saying to me, for example, you know, you have to keep studying and keep doing things, even if it doesn't look like you will be rewarded in the end, because we don't do the right thing expecting rewards. We do it just because it's the right thing to do. And this was actually something, an idea of freedom that I, I, I had sort of grown up with, my grandmother asserting it. And then I became really invested in philosophically afterwards when I started to study and to, yeah, to, to read philosophy and to look at different theories of freedom and different conceptions of, uh, and different understandings of freedom. I found this one really powerful because I felt that it gives you a really good understanding of, I think, what is fundamentally a human being and also what kind of society you can create with that conception of the human being at its core. And I found that was a very powerful notion of freedom, which is also sort of thrown in there in the mix in the book and discussed through characters and through dialogues and through the stories that each of them tells. That was Leia Upi. Free, Coming of Age at the End of History is out now, published by Penguin. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when Suvik Nahar will be speaking about cricket and the British Empire. Are you enjoying the History Extra podcast and want to delve a bit deeper into history? Why not take out a subscription for BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine, and receive a brand new book of your choice worth £25. Choose from either Powers and Thrones by Dan Jones, a signed edition, The Anglo-Saxons by Mark Morris, Crown and Scepter by Tracy Borman, or Soldiers by Max Hastings. Your subscription includes delivery of every issue right to your door. Receive all of this for just £22.45 every six issues. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash myhistorybook. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. See our website for further details. Overseas subscription prices are available online.